Hi, and welcome to episode 19 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, and my guest today is Lorabel Sporovsky. Lorabel is one of the new sensations in the Australian art scene. She's 27, and she only began painting seriously about five years ago. But she's been a finalist in 18 art competitions in just over the last two years, including the prestigious Doug Moran National Portrait Prize, the Black Swan Art Prize and the Portia Geach Memorial Award. She recently won the Cambridge Studio Gallery Art Prize and she's got three solo shows and a group show lined up over the next 12 months. Lorabel was born in the Philippines and came to Australia when she was nine. She studied at the College of Fine Arts with the University of New South Wales but at the time, she never thought she'd become a practising artist. But a few things happened which led her to take up painting and she just never looked back. She effectively taught herself to paint by relentlessly researching artists and their techniques and constantly taking risks and producing impressive works along the way. We talk about all that and discuss how she met her partner, concert pianist Simon Tedeschi, who's become her muse and source of much of her subject matter. You can see the paintings we talk about on talkingwithpainters.com, where you'll also find links to things we talk about on the show. I started by asking Laura Bell where she was born. Well, I was born in Manila in the Philippines because my mother is Filipino and my dad is Yugoslavian so he's actually half Serbian half Macedonian all right but, uh, I did not meet him until I was seven. Oh, really yeah. so was he living in um, Serbia he was living in Australia actually because my parents met in Malaysia my mother was a singer and he was an engineer yeah. they met there fell in love conceived me in Serbia <laughs> and then I was born in the Philippines and uh, his next job was in Australia, but we didn't have a visa, so we couldn't go with him. And of course, he'd send occasionally photos and letters and postcards and things, and my mum would read them to me sometimes. Um, yeah, so my... And I had a lot of cousins and a lot of, you know, extended relatives. In so, the Philippines. In the Philippines. So uh, we weren't alone, yeah, yeah. but um, it did feel like my mum and me against the world, so we have a very mm. close relationship. Okay. Um, yeah, so... so And so what, how old were you when you came to Australia? I just turned nine. Uh, okay. so, uh, and how did that feel? Oh, crazy, because I was the only white person in an Asian country. And then coming here, <laughs> I was like, I'm not white, actually. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm really not oh, so white. So you were considered in the Philippines not to be yeah, Asian. You were like, considered white. Because I looked different. I mean, I think this is true of all Southeast Asia. They really aesthetically have a preference for a Western look. And so when you, you say you've got a good memory, so you've got strong memories of your childhood. Very, do yeah. you, so do you have strong memories of like anything artistic, like drawing? Or Absolutely. Um, when I was about three or four, my dad sent me this picture book which was one of those personalized ones where you can get your child's name as the character. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I just will never forget seeing my name, Lorabelle, in print. And it was a beautiful story about, you know, a princess riding a dragon, yeah, all yeah. of this stuff, going yeah. on an adventure. And ever since then, I was going to make it my mission to have my name in print like this again. I was going to be a writer. I was going to be an illustrator, something. Yeah, something yeah. where my name would be in print. Yeah. And 
And then my dad's younger brother is actually an artist. So he was a painter um, living in Serbia, in Belgrade. And he sent me a drawing of me. So was it a realistic drawing? Yeah, just like Like a a pencil drawing? That's right. From a photo? From a photo that my dad had sent him. Uh, It was my absolute treasure. Mm. I just thought this, I don't know, my life sort of snapped (laughs) at that point where I thought I have to do something. Um, I only started drawing when I moved to Australia because I was very introverted and I didn't, I didn't go out very much. So I would just read and draw in my bedroom. So what was, um, I presume you did art in high school? I sure did. Um, yeah, I just had really great art teachers who immediately saw potential in me. Um, my, my year 11 and 12 teacher was my absolute favorite teacher. We're still very good friends. Um, and she just, she just knew that this was my thing. And I remember starting my HSC work and, uh, she just gave me free reign of everything. She's like, take it. It is yours. Use all these materials. And, uh, so as in choose whatever you like, whatever I like, uh, however much paint I want to use. And at this point I actually asked her, how do I paint? Miss, how do I paint? I don't know how to do it. And she said, I'm a photographer. I'm so sorry. Like, you have to figure it out for yourself. Oh, really? <laughs> so, so I actually what? had to figure it out for myself. And uh, so I, I decided to do a, a body of work on my little brother, who yeah. I was obsessed with. And, uh, for the HSC. For the yeah. HSC. But I had to teach myself how to paint. And I remember having to paint his hand. And then my music teacher, who was all, who I'm also very close with, came in and said, they look like sausages. They don't, they don't look right. Mm. And I just cried because I was like, how do I, how do I do it? It looks like this. I know it looks like that, but how does it go from that to that? Yeah. And I just had this huge crisis because how do you make it look three-dimensional? Yeah. How does it occupy space when it's flat? It's an illusion. And was this so, acrylic paint you were using? It was acrylic. Yeah. And plus it kept drying. So mm. I had this issue of... Mm. Makes it very difficult. Yeah. And so, yeah. and how, how did you teach yourself how to do that? Trial and error, honestly. Because, so what happened is I gave up on the hand. <laughs> so I just half hid it <laughs> under the sleeve. I can make the sleeve a bit longer, surely. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. Artist tricks. One hand doesn't exist. It's just hidden. And then one, you can see like the, the sausage fingers coming up. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so I started to paint other things in the background. Mm. One of the things I painted was a, an origami crane folded out of a newspaper. Oh, yeah. um, because he was wow. also wearing a newspaper hat. Do you know one of those folded yes, boat hats? Like a boat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I found it so easy to make it look like a realistic piece of newspaper because I Mm. found that I could copy the pattern Mm. really easily because it was more linear. It wasn't so much about uh, rendering tone Mm. and Mm. form. So, um, yeah, and I did that and it sort of, it bolstered me because I thought, okay, I can sort of do this. Yeah. So then I went back to the face and then I did more layers and then I unknowingly did glazes because I started to do these lighter washes of color. And so at what point did you think I'm going to pursue a career in art? Well, uh, 
I did very well for my HSC. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I had my pick of, of whatever course I wanted to do. And my teacher, my visual arts teacher, who I was closest with, I asked her for advice. And she said, it would be a crime if you didn't go into art. So mm-hmm. I thought, okay, um, I will go to Kofa because that's where she went. <laughs> and, and I'm going to do fine arts, but I'm going to do a diploma of education at the end because pff, who's going to be an artist? I'm going to teach. That's what so, I'm going to do. Right, so you didn't think I'm going to be all. a painter? No way. I came right. from, you know, a philo background. There is no way you're going to be an artist. So I started with fine arts and then um, they started talking about we are training you to become practicing artists. And that just pulled, it was a red flag for me where I was like, no, this is not what I am in this for. Mm. Why am I doing fine arts? Why don't I just do bachelor of art education? So I switched in my second year. I actually changed from fine arts to art education. So I, I finished the rest of my degree in a different course, oh, okay. yeah, which wasn't at all focused on fine arts. So I only had electives. So I did print, I did sculpture, I did mm. installation, I did a bit of video, photography, a mm. mm. little bit of everything. Um, basically six months of everything. Okay. Yeah, and, and then s- prax and teaching in school. Because and what was that is, like? What were the prax like? Well, this is, where, this is where things began to change. Because when I did the prax, I would have these practically debilitating panic attacks Um, Because I would get so nervous with the performative aspect of it. Mm. Um, Because I was good in the theory. Mm. But when it came to the the teaching aspect and and putting yourself at the mercy of, you know, 20 to 30 (laughs) teenagers. Was it more of a discipline issue with the class? Yeah, exactly. And I'm I'm not much of a disciplinarian. So Mm. I found it very difficult to put on that authoritative Mm. persona. Mm. And uh, even the the practical thing of my voice wasn't loud enough to carry and and mm. rein everyone in. Mm. Um, I just I couldn't do it, and it would. The longer the prax became, the more anxiety it gave me. Right. And I would just sort of be huddled under my doona in bed, dry heaving, thinking, "Oh, oh crap! Yeah. This is not. I don't think this is right." Mm. Mm. So I decided in my final year, what if I do my honours and go into a more academic thing? Maybe I could aim to have a PhD, something, you know, Mm -hmm. because I was very into, uh, for instance, philosophical studies of art. Mm. That was my my best subject. Um, So I tried to write a thesis proposal, but I don't know how to write a thesis proposal. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that got rejected. And uh, I was just lowest of the low I thought Mm. I can't do the masters because they at our meeting they told me why don't you teach for a few years and then come back and then you can do your masters in art education and I thought when they said teach for a few years just the pit of my stomach Mm. just fell Mm. because I thought I need money I have to do this this is what my life is going to be for the next three years Mm. you know Maybe that, I'm going to have to start taking meds to, to manage yeah, to, this anxiety. To cope. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so it was clearly not the the, yeah. the path for you. It, it really wasn't. So at this point, you sort of, you, you've decided, you, you realise that you're not going to become a teacher and you're not going to do PhD. Yeah. So what happened then? So then I was depressed and uh, mm. my partner at the time 
told me, well, why don't you paint? Why don't you just make some art as some self-therapy, essentially? Mm. Because I thought, okay, I have this tutoring job. At least I have a way of making money. So I increased that. So I decided to do that painting mm. that I, I showed you, yeah. which is actually of him, of my so ex. So it was a, it was a full-length painting of your boyfriend at the time mm-hmm. in a bush setting. Yeah. But very realistic. How did you feel when you, you completed that? Uh, well, it was three months of me umming and ahhing and thinking, how do I paint wood? Uh, <laughs> why doesn't the paint go in the weave of the canvas? Because I hadn't primed it. I, I bought, you know, a terrible um, canvas from Tex. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't even the best dimensions. I just picked one that I thought a person will fit. That's, I didn't even think about what it would look like. So I had given myself this challenge. I thought I tried oil at uni a few times and I liked the, the consistency of it. It mm. felt very natural and intuitive. Mm. Um, I didn't know any techniques really, but, uh, I so thought, you would have had to get used to sort of using a solvent yeah, and getting yeah. brushes. Oh, and see, I, I didn't know anything about mediums, so everything was watered down with solvent yeah. and that would affect the colour later on. So yeah. I had all of these challenges because it was a problem-solving thing. And so that, so you completed that painting just through trial and error. Absolutely. And, and were you telling me that you entered it into the Doug Moran? Yeah, so I eventually entered it into the Doug Moran and... Uh, it's actually a long story why I entered it into the Doug Moran. So I was convinced against my better judgment to try and pursue the then existing Olsen Owen gallery. So I I'd only made a few decent paintings, mm-hmm. uh, but you were aiming high. I was, well, yeah, my, my partner at the time was like, no, aim for the very best. Why not start up and then work yeah, your not? way down. That's right. And uh, against my better judgment, because I thought I'm not ready to, I'm not artistically developed enough. I only just started like last year. (laughs) I'm not going to do this. (laughs) But I did go eventually after a a mini panic attack in the car. I did go and Rex Irwin was there (laughs) and and we did show him on the iPad what I got. And uh, most of it, he just said, "Eh, whatever. You know, and then he saw the the first Memento Mori painting that I'd done because mm-hmm. I had just completed it like the day before, mm-hmm. and he thought, "This is interesting, but it's it's trying to lie to me." That's what he said. Mm, what it's did trying you mean by to that, do you it's think? trying to convince me of of something. I think because it was photorealistic, mm-hmm. and he was curious why I bothered to distort it um, if it was going to be photorealistic. I think he didn't quite. It didn't quite mm, compute mm, with him. Mm. But then he saw that painting and he said this. You know who will like this? The Doug, Mor- the Doug Moran people. Mm. You should enter it. So I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll enter it. And then a few months later, I'll enter it. I can spare $50. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. Yeah. And then shock horror it had got through to the semi-finals yeah that must have been a it, that must have been crazy. a confidence booster it was and uh well i'd actually i'd entered a few other things that year into mm. the dunmoran um i'd entered that first memento mori painting and mm. i was really hoping that that would get in because i thought i'm trying something new here i'm trying mm. to um 
to be recognizable in some way because I know no one has done really this sort of thing. Mm. Well, I'll just explain for people who might yeah. not know what memento mori yeah. is. It's it's basically in art. It's uh, it's some sort of work where it's referring to. Um, uh, it's a reminder of our mortality. That's right. And often there's a something like a skull. You know, right. If there's a still life, it'll be a skull yeah. and an hourglass or something yeah. like that. But can you describe a bit about this series of Memento Mori paintings? So it was a series of about seven or eight paintings that I did uh, of people close to me, people that I knew who were going through anxiety or some kind of mental disability. Mm-hmm. Um And it's a way of me expressing what I was going through at the time Mm. Um, because I had painted that very soon after being rejected for my master's, you know, of of realizing that I couldn't go into teaching and being in this total crisis because I didn't know what to do with my life. Mm. And at the time, my then partner was going through his own depression Mm. for his own reasons and being so close to him you know, I was vicariously also experiencing that depression. So I was just in this extremely claustrophobic situation and I had no real outlet except my art. So I made these extremely claustrophobic paintings that were both moving and still. And it was, a lot of them were disturbing and like Mm. (laughs) some people can't even look at it because they, they find it jarring somehow the actual subjects that's right yeah Um, because you had various heads layered on top of each other um looking in different directions and and sort of the skull sometimes showing and sometimes the brain brain, showing and actually that leads us on to this painting which is right next to us now (laughs) and it is i will put a picture of this on the website it's a stunning painting of some your partner simon tedeschi who is uh a famous australian um, concert pianist and it is with that memento mori style of those paintings you're talking about yeah. how did you did you approach him for this painting how did that come about yeah so this this painting sort of was the culmination of a very difficult time in my life which started with graduating and that crisis of of not knowing what to do Mm. and then this the memento mori series grew out of that Mm. anxiety and that i guess depression Mm. and then uh my relationship at the time was also breaking down quite badly and uh when i met simon so i actually met him because he liked my work so he saw my work online Mm -hmm. he saw the memento mori painting that i had done of my ex actually (laughs) and uh, he just said i think this is amazing Mm. so we started talking that way then i thought he's a pretty good subject for the archibald yeah he's already won before but it's been a long time so i asked him uh initially i wanted to ask him to just sit for a regular memento mori portrait because i wanted to continue the series because i think at the time i only had seven Mm -hmm. At that point, two of the Memento Mori uh, paintings had gotten into art prizes. And uh, I thought, okay, firstly, there's something to this. I'm doing something right. Mm -hmm. Because these art prizes were really validating what I was doing. Um, uh, It was like the Porsche Gage. The Porsche Gage muzzle book art prize and the Black Swan. Yep, the Black Swan, yep. Um, so I'd made these super, super smooth surfaces. Like mm. it, it felt like skin. It felt so like there's paper. no weave or anything. That's no all, weave. Yeah. Exactly. And, 
Um, so that transformed everything. And then when I found out about varnish, <laughs> that then transformed it <laughs> because what, what I was frustrated with is once the paint dried, because I was using mostly solvent rather than any medium, any oil medium like linseed or something, mm-hmm. um, the colors would desaturate. It would become powdery at mm. the end. Um, so I thought, how am I going to solve that? So then I looked it up online and I found out varnish you can varnish it afterwards and that restores the the chroma you know the intensity yeah, of the color yeah. um <laughs> so, so that must have been a huge revelation like, oh. actually you know what i sort of have always had that problem that i don't quite understand what because it sinks exactly. especially blacks and things it, precisely and yeah. the depth is gone yeah oh you should have seen me when i first discovered varnish <laughs> what i literally did was i was like i'm gonna just pour this entire bottle on it and I did. I poured like half of the bottle. And, you, and of course, what happened, if anyone ever tried this, you will find that it dries in clumps. And, oh. and, you, and you get these weird kind of <laughs> lily pad looking marks on it because you hadn't brushed it in yeah. and you didn't leave the layers to dry. Yeah, so yeah, I just, yeah. I was like, okay, big mistake. Hold back on the... On, you were so the, excited <laughs> to discover it. I know, so I overdid it. Um, but YouTube is amazing. It is. You know, you just Absolutely. sort of Google it. Oh, And you know what? I was even hesitant to go on YouTube because I was so jealous that I wasn't as good as the, the people doing the, the YouTube videos. I would just look it up on Wikipedia, <laughs> on WikiHow. That's what I do, WikiHow. Eventually, when I thought, okay, I'm not as self-conscious, I can do the wiki, I can do the videos on YouTube. Yeah. But before that, I was like, oh no, it'll just show me how bad I am. I'll oh, just do wiki. A funny <laughs> thing. I know what you mean. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah, you sort of don't want to go there because you think, oh no, I'll figure it out myself. Exactly. I don't need you to tell exactly. me. Exactly. I was like, no, <laughs> I'll be steadfast. I can do it myself. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you did this amazing painting that yes. I'm looking at at the moment. Oh, and, um. You entered into the Archibald. I and, did. Yeah, and so what, ha- what happened? I, why well, didn't we take it? <laughs> well, I I wish I knew. To yeah, be honest, yeah. I wish I knew why they didn't take it. Uh, my theory is people don't really know what to make of it because I think, like Rex Irwin said, it's trying to do something to me. It's trying to lie to me. It's not a photograph. It's a painting, but it's trying to be a photograph. It's also trying to be an edited photograph, a photograph. You know, mm, there was Photoshop like a photo involved, montage, yeah. like a photo montage. The painting that I entered into the Archibald was the first one I did of Simon. And it took 30 days, which was the longest period which had been the longest period that I I spent on a painting and it was torture. You know, Mm. photorealism is is torturous. Mm. It's so Mm. labor intensive. You're sitting there. It's like 10 centimeters from your face. (laughs) You've got either a screen or a printed copy of the section that you're working Mm. on. Mm. And, uh, and I was depressed, of course, that I hadn't got it in because I was like, this is actually a good painting. It's the first time I told myself, this is a good painting. And, um, I didn't get in. I thought, well, shit, what do I do now? Mm. I'd, I'd already reached the zenith. You know, this is already my, my magnum <laughs> opus. What do I do at 25, 26, whatever I was? Um, mm. And so I decided, okay, I'm going to not do photorealism. Why? Why am I sitting in front of this canvas for 30 days and torturing myself to 
replicate a photo. Mm. I was doing it because I thought it demonstrated skill and I had so much to prove as an establishing artist. Mm. I was trying to prove to people that I can do this. I was mm. trying to get rid of that feeling that I was a fraud. Uh, and I realized that I'd stopped becoming an artist. I'd stopped the art because I was too focused on proving myself. Mm. And uh, as confident as this artwork looks like, it's really a portrait of my insecurity. As the whole Memento Mori series is, it's all about my insecurity, trying to prove myself, look, I'm good enough. I can paint realistically. How mm. great is that? Mm. So I, I, I felt satisfied that I had learned all I could yeah. from that photorealistic style. Mm. And I didn't need it anymore because for, for a long time, it was a crutch for me. The grid method was a crutch for me. The projector eventually mm. was a crutch for me mm. because I was so afraid of making a mistake because I saw them as mistakes rather than expressions mm. of the way I saw things, the way I saw the world. Yep. And the irony was the artists that I admired were not photorealists. Yeah. You know, they were artists who were super expressive, like Francis Bacon, like Lucien Freud, Jean-Michel yeah. Basquiat, you know, all of these artists mm. who didn't paint in a photorealistic way. And I admired them because I didn't know how they did what they did. Right. Where does it come from? It's like from? mysterious. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So uh, my pathway of, of getting to the point where I felt confident enough to create works that were closer to the artists that I admired started with studies. Yeah. And uh, I started small. So I actually did um, these several studies of Simon mm -hmm. and uh, I made a triptych out of three of them and then that got into a prize the the Mossman Art Prize oh yes and that was a more expressive yeah uh, yeah and it was a group of paintings it was a more impressionistic um mm. I painted them super quick like I only gave myself an hour two hours something and uh and I did you look at how did you develop that style was that by looking at other artists no so this is the thing I mean with me I really live in art so I when I'm not working in the studio I'm watching a documentary or I'm reading something or just on Instagram scrolling through and just researching artists so whether or not I am actually doing it in the style of an artist the knowledge is there so I'm, I'm it's constantly um, influencing the mark making that I do mm -hmm. uh, so I had been researching a lot about Velasquez and, and John Singer Sargent mm -hmm. so my mark making was in you know inevitably going to reference them the colors that I was choosing um and I'm because I'm constantly researching contemporary artists and seeing what their practice is all about and if I admire a certain artist's style I try to emulate it or do something that borrows from what they're doing what mm. I like about it mm. a certain quality or element and what for example would you say recently have seen that you like Oh well, there's a an artist called Ray Turner. Oh yeah, who, uh, I follow him on Instagram yeah, too. Yeah, he, he's he did great. The, the Population series that yeah. is still ongoing, and it's so immediate. Yeah, it's impasto and it's all alla prima, and it's so lush and rich. The texture of it, um, but somehow is realistic. <laughs> you know, yeah. he he manages that that balance between expressiveness and uh, and realism. Mm. Um, but I found because I, I've been researching so many different artists, it all sort of 
amalgamates it it all combines and mm. and I'm not just focusing on one artist and mm. it's it's all informing each other so I try to keep that stew going in my head and by the time I'm at the canvas I just go okay do the first thing that comes to you so the first thing that comes is often a combination of of a few of the Definitely. artists I've been which I think I think that's how all artists become I artists. think so um, you've got a great studio where the piano takes up about two thirds of it, yep. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's your your easel, and um, you work you work next to each other. Yes, we do. Um, how do you manage that? Well, it's actually a it's it's a wonderful thing because we're both in such solitary professions. Um, you know, even painters who paint in a shared studio space, they are in their little bubble world. And for a concert pianist, practicing is, I think he compared it to pulling your own guts out, you know, because it's, it's like this Promethean thing or this Sisyphus thing of, of you are torturing yourself. You are choosing to do it. And does he give you feedback about your work? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, when, when he's in practice mode, my, my painting can be like right there. It's huge and the colors are really bright, but he can't actually see it mm. because he's... At, from the piano? No, just oh. literally. He, it's oh. like he's zoned out. He's just so focused that he can't look at it. And then I'll, I'll say, hey, what do you reckon? What do you think? of what I've done so far and it'll go oh wow that's amazing and then I'll have this really fresh immediate response to what I'm doing how does how do you feel that music is influences your own work uh kind of pretty hugely I mean I'm a I listen to a lot of music I have a pretty eclectic taste and my mum was a singer Mm. so music has been a huge part of my life and I myself used to sing I don't really sing much anymore but um, yeah, I mean, I, I constantly listen to music and podcasts. <laughs> I'm a bit obsessed with podcasts, but, uh, with Simon's music in particular, I mean, he's introduced me to a whole new world really of mm. classical music. I had always listened to classical music, but, uh, he really deepened my love of classical music. Mm. And, uh, is it mostly piano that you would listen to in classical music? Or? Uh, no, a little bit of everything. Mm. I think I mean, I studied piano as a kid as well. Oh, I actually okay. have a, a terrible piano uh, back at my parents' place, which is so out of tune, but Simon still plays it and it's hilarious. <laughs> He's like, it's like a whorehouse piano. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> he plays just honky-tonk music. On it. Do you uh, ever play at home here? Do you oh, ever play? Oh, gosh, no. I made the, <laughs> I think it's a mistake, once of playing in front of him and just... <laughs> I mean, the, the hilarious thing was in high school, I was known as the, the musical person. Like, I, I was a legitimate pianist in my high school. Nah, I, I just refused to, to even yeah. go near it. But, uh, uh, for instance, music, uh, the titles for a lot of my artworks are based on musical pieces. Mm. Uh, because I find that um, a lot of, of musicians and composers really resonate with what I'm trying to say. Uh, for instance, the music of Skriabin or Shostakovich, Rachmaninoff, uh, a lot of Russians. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, In what way would they, do they oh, just, reflect what you're doing? I guess in a, you know what synesthesia is? Uh, sort of. It's a, a condition, a neurological condition where you can see colour. 
Uh, for instance, right. where there's wires crossing in your brain and yep. you can smell it. Or you relate color. color to, yeah, yeah like a word. The senses, yeah, the yeah. senses get crossed over. Yeah. And I guess it, I don't have synesthesia. I wish I did. But uh, I have a, a thing where I just, my, I, I see things with music. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, one of the first things that he introduced to me was the music of Olivier Messiaen, who's mm-hmm. this modernist French composer. And I was like blown away by the music because it's incredibly it's very jagged it's very mm-hmm. abstract and uh it's not pleasant music mm-hmm. it's sort of like anti-aesthetic art and uh in a way it actually helped me you know thinking back to when I was starting these experiments with with my art the music actually really affected me mm-hmm. it really helped me to be more expressive because I would Often when I'm painting, I'm too distracted by either my own insecurities or things that I'm trying to achieve visually mm. that I I forget about what I'm actually trying to express artistically. Yeah. And when I when I focus on the music, it distracts me from... <laughs> it makes you less analytical. It makes me less analytical, exactly. Yeah. So weirdly, it makes me more visual. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Do, you, do, do you need music to paint? I do. Yeah. I do. Uh, I always have to have music, even if I'm alone. Um, I can't just have silence. Mm. It actually, it really helped me focus. You were showing me your sketchbook earlier, which (laughs) I just fell in love with because I saw these sketches you've put on Instagram, um, which you've done with sort of marker pens. Yeah. And they're so, they're so fresh and they're so, um, you know, they look so spontaneous. And they are, they, um, when I started doing these spontaneous, uh, more from memory drawings, mm. uh, they're sort I, of, I should explain, they're figures, maybe two figures in a yeah. page or a face, and they're sort of free flowing lines. Distorted yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, it actually started while I was waiting backstage for one of Simon's recitals. Mm. And I had nothing to do, so I thought, I feel like just doodling something and then I can't uh, believe you call it doodling anyway. <laughs> and, and then it, it just escalated and I mm. I liked what came out because mm. I had never really like the last time I did that I was seven you know where, where oh, I just really? drew from memory and I just drew la 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 it's a sun you know yeah, it's a flower yeah, yeah, yeah. this time it's a scary monster with a very <laughs> long neck and claws uh so like I I've I draw a lot of my nightmares, for instance. Mm. Like I have a genuine fear of the dark and, and fear of, of monsters and creepy things. Mm. Um, and I find that when I start to draw freehand out of my imagination, that's what comes out. And it's just this recurring thing that keeps coming out. Uh, and you can see it's sort of connected to my Memento Mori series. Mm. This is it's like just monst- such a, like monsters and sort of fright- yeah, things that frighten things you. that frighten me mm. and. Uh, and now I feel that I'm I'm doing it so that I get to know them better, and I I am less afraid, and it is a kind of self therapy. Mm. What do you think about social media? How do you use it? I I use it for research a lot, so I'm just constantly going through and seeing who do my who do the artists that I follow follow, you know, yeah. who do they value, yeah. and then that leads me to another selection of artists Mm. and then it's a whole chain and then uh, often those artists will 
talk about their influences, so historical art references, and then I mm. research more into that artist, and mm. it's just this never-ending chain of interconnected mm. practitioners. You, it's also connected to images, so you get instant images all the time. Absolutely, and instant um, thoughts from the artist, direct from the artist's mouth, so yep. you can see how they think yep. live. Yeah, right here, right now. What are they saying? What are they thinking? What are the challenges they're facing? And then you don't feel so self-conscious because you think, oh, okay, they also struggled with this and that. Especially those artists that are willing to share all that. Absolutely. And you just think, and actually I think those artists are sort of, I put them at a higher level than everyone else because I think, well, you're so confident and so self-assured that you don't feel there's any threat to you by sharing your information. And I think that's that's a growing thing where artists no longer think, I don't want to ruin the magic Mm. because you realize that even if you tell a person the ingredients list, you still made it. You still created the thing. Mm. And um, the magic is still there. It doesn't fade. Even if you find out that they used this tool, which you never thought of, it's a new innovation. And then if you choose, you could maybe use that tool and uh, in your own unique way. Yeah. So that's what I've yeah, been that's doing. That's right. And it yeah. won't be necessarily the same. Exactly. Even yeah. if you use the same technique, it's mm. a different story. You're a different person. So mm. inevitably it's going to be a different work. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me at your Thank home. You, Maria. And um, I've just enjoyed so much seeing Thank your you. studio <laughs> and your wonderful works, which are just absolutely gorgeous. Um <laughs> And hope to see you again soon. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Laura Bell. As I mentioned in the intro, she's got three solo shows coming up, two in Sydney uh, with Gaffer Gallery coming up in the next few months. And then in September, October, she has a show with Fairfield City Museum and Gallery where she currently has a residency and she's carrying out this huge project exploring the wonderful multicultural identity of Fairfield City, uh, which is in Western Sydney. She also has another solo show at Cambridge Studio Gallery in Melbourne, Victoria, and she's involved in a group show at Gosford Regional Gallery on the central coast of New South Wales um, in April. I've listed those shows on talkingwithpainters.com, so just go there for those details. Don't forget, as always, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or on your podcast app, on your phone, on your iPad, on your laptop. And if you'd like to leave a review or rating on iTunes, that would be great too. Hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking With Painters.